Today's scripture reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you truly are who you say you are, and you prove that over and over and over again. God, as we have seen who you are in our worship and even in our communing together, we pray that you would remind us and teach us and reveal yourself to us through your word today. You tell us that these words from you, is, they are what we need to be comforted, to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be taught, to have everything we need for life and godliness. So God, will you bring all those things today for us through your word, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in this series on idols, and we've been uh, digging deep into what we love, how we love them, and what it means to cling to some things in such a way that even though, even though the, the things that we're clinging to may not be bad things, they may be good things that we've turned into ultimate things, and that's how we start seeing where real idolatry is in our heart. And so the topic that we're going to talk about today is one that I, I think I've shared this once before, I have shied away from a lot. And the reason why I've shied away from it is because of my own baggage and my own stuff, because I grew up in a culture where the idea of money was abused so much that it was a great way for churches to manipulate and shame people into building up certain empires. And so I've, I've seen that so much and I've been so concerned by it because I've seen people hurt by it and abused by it that I've really avoided it altogether. And I have to say, I'm very convicted by it because ultimately there's an area of my own pastoring and my own shepherding that I feel like I failed you. Because in, in a huge way, that's a very big part of our discipleship. What we give, not even just what we give, but what we keep and why, says a lot about where we are as far as how we understand who God is, what it means to be a part of giving in a, in a, God, a gospel-centered community, and so I've largely just avoided it because of fear of getting too close to something like that, what that would end up looking like. And that's what happens when you let even fears from the past start to direct what it is that we do instead of operating in faith and says, God's word is still here. And God has something to say to, say to us about money, specifically our love of it, and how we handle that. What does it look like to steward that well? Back in uh, 1783... There was uh, the massive smallpox outbreak. Some of you guys are old enough to remember. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't look at anybody specific. Uh, but back in 1783, of smallpox. And when this happened, all of a sudden, uh, you started seeing people dying left and right. Roughly 80% of children who contracted this disease died. And it was incredibly a, a fearful time. It was so fearful that people just started hiding their children so that they would never come in contact with other children or adults. So people would just hide it because they were so afraid of getting their children so close to smallpox that they would die. Their immune systems were much weaker than grown-ups, so they died at a much higher rate. 
And so you could understand why people would hide from it. They would hide and keep our kids locked in the house. We don't really want them to get anywhere near that. Well, there was a man by the name of Edward Jenner. And Edward Jenner, uh, was, uh, he was a scientist, he was a, a doctor, and he felt really strongly that there's got to be another way. There has to be a better way than hiding from the disease. And so he had the idea that why don't we expose certain children and kids and, and adults, he started with adults, uh, expose them to a slightly derived form of smallpox in cows, known as cowpox. And so he started allowing people to get closer. He started testing some things. And what they found was almost 100% of the people that got exposed to this cowpox had no reaction to smallpox. And all of a sudden, people started surviving. People started making it through. As a matter of fact, he and his other doctors came up with the name vaccine, which is from the Latin word for cow, which is vaca. And so the reasons why we actually use that now, now listen, this isn't about like whether you should vaccinate or not. Please don't send me emails going, I felt challenged or attacked or triggered. I'm not even going either way on that. All I'm saying is that back then when there was this massive disease that was killing people, the idea was hide from it instead of get closer to it. Hide from it instead of get closer. And so what we need to do, and what I've been convicted in, is I actually need to, instead of hiding from this particular issue, we need to get close to it. Why? We're not worried about smallpox now. True. But we are worried about another form, another kind of a disease. It's been called affluenza. The idea that we have this addiction to, to being affluent and to uh, uh, gathering things for ourselves, uh, uh, what it means to, to build up our wealth and build up our storehouse, and we'll have great phrases and great reasons for doing so. Because there's this idea that I need to just keep getting. I need to keep getting. Now, the question still comes up, is it okay then to love doing that? So I'm going to say this. I'm going to ask you this. When I... If you were to just stop and make a list of the things that you love, you don't have to say them out loud, but just think about them for a minute. Really take a few seconds, just think through, what things or people do I love? What things or people do I love? Just think about it for a second. You see, whatever you love, or whoever you love, you will pursue, you will protect, and you will prioritize. Anything you love, or any person you love, you will pursue, you will protect, and you will prioritize. When you love the right things, then those three Ps are good. When you love the right things, when you love your spouse and you love your children, you will pursue them, right? If there are people that you love, you pursue relationship with them. You protect them from harm. You prioritize them above others, right? Of other things, other activities. You prioritize them. Why? Because I love them. But what if... I love things that I shouldn't. You see, if I love something, I'm going to pursue it, right? So what if I love something? It may not even be a bad thing, but it's an ultimate, so I'm pursuing it at other people's expense. Or I'm protecting it, even though there should be some things that should pro probably impact it. I'm protecting it because I want to keep it for myself at other people's expense. Or I'm just prioritizing it above others that I should be loving. This is what disordered love looks like. I start pursuing the wrong thing. I start protecting the wrong thing. I start prioritizing the wrong thing. Now, hear what I'm saying. This passage 
it is often one of the most misquoted passages in Scripture because typically the way the quote goes, and when you Google it, you see it everywhere. I hear it quoted in media all the time incorrectly. Money is the root of all evil. Does this, do the Scriptures actually say that? No, they don't. Let's take a look and read it together again. Here Paul is writing to his protege, one that he actually mentored and discipled. Timothy was uh, this young uh, Jewish and Greek Samaritan. So Paul has spent this time mentoring this young man, teaching him what it means to be a pastor, teaching him what it means to, to disciple folks well. And here he is giving counsel to this young pastor of this church. And here's what he tells him. It's really interesting. He says, when you, when you, we'll start at, at, uh, at verse, uh, start at verse three. If anyone teaches fake, false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you hear the difference there? We so lazily would just throw out, well, money is the root of all evil, and you'll see that everywhere. And what you're seeing is there's a deeper issue, right? What you're seeing is that money, like anything else, is this incredible tool. It's very amoral. Actually, it's neither negative or positive. It's this very neutral thing that can be used and appropriated for really good things, or really bad things. The question is, do you love it? This is one of those things where, when I was in business school, it was a very big topic, right? Because you would have lots and lots of business leaders and financial folks that would say things like, loving money is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with loving money, and then we'll justify it. We have all of our justifications. Why? Because look at all the things I can do with money. I can do this for them, I can do that for them. Matter of fact, there's an incredible list that one uh, financial guy uh, used, fresh out of business school, and he said this. He said, it's a great thing to love money. People should just admit it and stop trying to be fakely, uh, falsely puritanical, holier than thou. Truth of the matter is, we all love money, let's admit it. And then he starts giving the justifications. If, if you love money, you might study harder in school. If you love money, you might work harder at your job to get that raise and that promotion. If you love money, you might take more risks by starting a company. If you love money, you might allocate resources better and not burn through a whole ton of cash. If you love money, you might be able to help more people in need by giving away money or time. If you love money, you might be able to experience financial freedom and do things that you really want to do. If you love money, you might be able to express yourself more freely without caring what people think. If you love money, you might be able to stop doing things for money and start doing things out of love. Now, many of those things aren't bad things, right? in and of themselves. But there's a, there's a fundamental attribution error here. To think that your love of money will take you there is the, is the scary thing. To think that the love of money takes you there is where the idolatry takes root. Here's what I mean. 
We have a high view of ourselves. We say this all the time. We tend to overestimate our willpower and our knowledge, and we underestimate our sin nature and our self-worshipping. We underestimate it all the time. So the only way this list could be true is if you are this perfectly formed, completely devoid of any kind of self-worship sin nature. But here's what the truth is. New York Daily did a, a poll about five years ago about what things people are willing to do for money. Listen to this. 6% of people would commit murder for a billion dollars. 6% of people said they would commit murder for a billion dollars. 15% said they would shoplift for $1,000. 10% said they would perform an illicit act on a stranger for $100,000. 15% said they would fake their death for $100 million. 10% said they would punch a stranger in the face for a million dollars. Now, some of y'all are like, eh, it's not that bad. Like, they, you know, if they don't know me, we good. You see, the truth of the matter is, it's easy to say when you want to think about your best self. See, that's what we do. We, we project out our best self, not our real self. Our real self, it's amazing the things we'd be willing to do for money. It's amazing. You, you know when you see this the most, and I don't care what side of the political fence you're on, it's amazing how quickly politicians will turn when money is threatened to be pulled away. It's amazing which legislation the politician will say, I will never do that to get elected, and then a group of people say, if you don't do that, we're pulling our money, and they switch. Why? Because ultimately, the love of money, and the scripture here says, it's interesting, when you read the, the actual Greek here, it, it, it doesn't even really give you a definite article in front of, so often we'll say, money or the love of money is the root of all evil. It actually just reads, the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Ultimately, what he's saying here is, the love of money, is not, it, you can't tie it to every single sin, but you can tie it to a lot. You see, if you love money and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it, why do you think there are people that have all kinds of illicit activities, horrible uh, things? They make a lot of money doing really illegal things, harmful things. People don't wake up one day and say at five years old, I can't wait to sell drugs and, and, and pharmaceutical things that can actually get people hooked and possibly kill them. No one says that, but they love money more than they care about the safety of the people around them. They love money and what it can bring them, even necessary things. That's why you hear people justify, listen, I had to do what I had to do. I was, it was rough. I didn't have any other way of getting around, so I had to do this. What about those other people? That's on them. I had to take care of me. So it, it's not that it's not a reasonable thing to say I need money, but I love it so much and I want to protect myself so much that I don't care whose expense it happens at. Now, we can use that example, or we can use uh, people who are like, hey, listen, I love money so much and I want more of it that if I have to find a way to embezzle funds from this multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar corporation, I'll do it. Even if it means that the people who work at this company are going to lose their retirement, I'll do it. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a very scary thing when we almost act like it's, this, it's just hanging out there and it doesn't really have a real effect on us. But our ability, the way that we overestimate our willpower and underestimate our sin nature is really, really dangerous. When you think through uh, what Paul is getting at here, Paul not only tells them what needs to happen, or he not, he not only warns them about this fear, he not, he not only warns them about what love of money can do, he ties that to this way of false teaching. 
See, there's a, there's a way that we've actually been taught, um, uh, actually for a lot of people, a long time ago, people would think that people who had the most money must be the ones that are blessed by God. Because if they're do- they must be doing something right. Because if, they're, if, they're, if they have a lot of money, God is blessing them, which means something's going well with them, which is why the people who were wealthy were the ones you looked up to, you aspired to, you wanted to be like. But we know that's not true. There are plenty of people who make all kinds of money that have no heart for God whatsoever. They have no goal at all for caring for other people. So there's got to be something more than just making money. When you think through uh, what, what he says, when he says that those who want to be rich fall into a temptation, this is when it's scary. Here's the thing. You never see anywhere in Scripture where God calls you to love anything inanimate. You won't find it. The greatest commandment, what does he tell you? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. You love people, you don't love things. It's scary when when any of us say, even good things, I love this thing. I love this thing, that scares me because that means you love that thing which means you're willing to pursue that. Who have you overlooked in order to love that thing? Whether it's sports, whether it's Working, whether it's uh, 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 watching certain programs, binging, whatever it is, it's scary when we get to a place where we actually love it. And we may not say we love it, but we functionally prove that we love it. Why? How are you pursuing it? How do you protect it? How much do you prioritize it? If that's true, it's probably an idol. And money is one of the biggest idols that we make. There's one financial advisor, uh, he puts it this way, he says, a life story could be written from a checkbook. It reflects your goals, your priorities, your convictions, your relationships, and even the use of your time. A person who's been a Christian for even a short while can fake prayer, can fake Bible study, can fake evangelism, can fake even at church, and so on, but they can't fake what their checkbook reveals. You see, when we, there's a direct line between what we value and where our money is, what we spend our money on. The question is not only what we give, but how much we keep. And you see that because where you see uh, Paul lead us from here, when he walks through this and he starts saying, he starts warning them, he tells Timothy, warn them for this, let them know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There were all kinds of people that were trying to figure out, okay, we're Christians now, what do we need? We're being told, there were false teachers telling them, hey, seek after this. By being a Christian, you are entitled to material gain. There are people that teach that today. The idea that because you are one of God's anointed, per se, because you are a child of God, because you believe in Jesus, you are now entitled to great riches. Because there are times where we can look at a passage and we take it out of context and we throw it out there. You know what's scary is church history doesn't bear this out. The majority of the people that follow Jesus in this Bible, try telling them that. Try telling them, hey, wait a minute. Peter, I see that you're, I'm noticing that you're there upside down getting crucified, but I don't know if you know this, but because you follow Jesus, you probably shouldn't be there. You actually should be off of that in a palatial mansion because you're one of God's children. You see, the majority of the folks that were following Jesus, they actually ended up suffering. Now, this isn't to say that every, just by being a Christian is your job to go be a martyr either. 
But sometimes we start drawing inferences and making conclusions that are just not true. And then we make people feel like, okay, if you're not wealthy over here, or you're not affluent over here, there must be something wrong with your faith. It's been taught in this country easily for the last 50 to 60 years. This idea that, that, that there is, there's no, this isn't a, a, about saying there's anything wrong with prosperity, but to think that that's something that's guaranteed just by virtue of being a Christian is to create an idolatrous gospel because that's just not true. So we start holding people to this standard. Well, you know, if you're following Jesus and then don't let there be a couple of people who are wealthier, then they get to be the ones that tell the story. Well, listen, here's what I did. And because I followed Jesus in this way, look at all the ways that I am now blessed. Psychologists call that survivor bias. <laughs> because I've done all these things, this is why I'm blessed. And the implication is that all the other, there are plenty of other people who didn't make it and it was because their faith wasn't on par with mine. They didn't obey at the same clip that I obeyed at. But that isn't true. We've got to be really careful with the way we talk about this because we start alienating, and it actually hurts community when we think that way. So Paul walks through, and he's, he's warning these folks, and he's letting them know, listen, this false teaching, this idea, the way that you're tying your spirituality to, to great wealth, it's idolatrous, and it's scary, and it can cause great, great harm. And he says in verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Now, when you think through everything he's charging him here, he's already laid out, here's the danger of affluenza. Here's the danger of this constant pursuit of wealth and how that becomes an idolatrous way of living because you actually miss what it means to love the right things. So you start loving the wrong things. Really, we shouldn't love things at all. We should only be loving people. And so he's really getting at that. But then at the, at, at the bottom here in verse 17, he says, but for those who have money, and by the way, if you were to do a one-to-one -one uh, ratio here, there's a lot more people here that would be considered much wealthier than, than the folks during that time. But regardless of how we compare each other, think about this. If you have any discretionary income to do things to console and to comfort yourself, you're in a different position than most of the people here. We all are in different socioeconomic places, don't get me wrong. But you, if you have any discretionary income, just in time, to be able to just do something for yourself, you're in a much different position than folks were then. So listen to this. Instruct those who are rich, verse 17, in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Okay, so where, where is Paul taking us? What, what is he really getting at here? Paul is ultimately saying this. When or if you get to a place where you have extra money and you are in a position where you are in this, you know, according to the, according to the World Health Organization, we in America are among the top 1%. If you make, I think if you make over $37,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. 
which is just a crazy stat to think through, right? Now, what's interesting in that is that when, when Paul kind of speaks to this, he says, if you are in this place where you're considered rich or you're considered well-off or you're able to do things for yourself, you know what your goal should be? Your goal should be what it means to live out generously. It's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be able to accumulate wealth. Why? Because I want to be able to be generous. But it, it shouldn't be rooted in, so that's why I love money. Actually, it's I love people. Because I love people, that's why I work hard. I love my family. I work hard. I love the ability to be able to bless God's kingdom. That's the reason why I work hard. That should be the motivation. Not just, I want people to, I want to be able to build this checkbook. I want to be able to, 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 to know that I'm the highest paid at this position. You see that in sports all the time. The moment, you do realize like athletes are one of the few places where everybody's salary is for public consumption. Like you always know who's making what. I mean, seriously, how would, how would we feel here if everybody's salary were just posted in our Icon Facebook group? You know, it's interesting, there's a lot of business studies that show that morale is much better in companies when everybody actually does know what everybody makes, actually. There's a whole other study behind it. Because there's this idea that once everybody knows where the clip is and what gets rewarded at a certain place, the only people who normally uh, make, the, the only people who, who tend to uh, benefit from hiding salaries are the companies, because that ensures they'll never have to pay more than they should. So that way they keep everybody else wondering, 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 but they know good and well, if everybody knew, we'd end up having to pay out more. But when you think through the fact that everybody knows when you're playing, if you're playing quarterback and you think that you're the best quarterback in the NFL and somebody else just gets a major payday, you're going, great, I now know what to ask for. I now know exactly why, because I want to be the highest paid. Or some people say, I want to be the top five paid, right? Because there's always this sense of measuring up. It's not because I need more money just because uh, X, Y, and Z is happening, or there's this thing I'm a part of that if I have more money, I can actually be a part of being a blessing in this way. That's not what, roots, what, what that's rooted in. It's rooted in I need more. I deserve more. And so I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to protect my right for that. And I'm going to prioritize that. And what Paul says is in order... The only real vaccination against affluenza is a commitment to generosity, a commitment to loving God in such a way that you say, Lord, I'm so overwhelmed with how generous you've been to me that I can't help but want to live a life that's characterized by generosity to others. Now, what does that mean, uh, what does that mean for us? Because for, for a lot of us, that's something different, right? What generosity looks like for one person is going to look very different for what it looks like for another person. It's gonna be different. They're gonna be, uh, we all are in different places, right? This is why here at this church, if you've been through our membership classes, we kind of explain this, but you'll notice one of the things while we, yes, we need to be talking about money much more, one of the things we don't do, we don't necessarily pressure with a specific uh, percentage. You'll hear this in our membership classes and we bring this up often. One of the things that's interesting is you don't really see in the New Testament a command for a specific amount to give. Now, we do, in the Old Testament, you saw people would give a tithe, known as 10%. But if you really dig into what people gave back in the Old Testament, in the in, in ancient Jewish world, actually, they gave much more than that. Because you gave 10% of what you had, and then if you went to all of the feasts, you were required to give just at the feasts alone. And so when you combined all of that, you were given about 23%. If you think about what that would look like, 
How much would we feel? I see faces right now. Like, how would we feel if all of a sudden we were given 23%? But here's the issue. In the New Testament, there are no percentages given. You know why? Because in the New Testament, much like you see what Jesus does throughout, he'll say, you have heard it said X, Y, and Z, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say unto you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. You have heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed it in your heart, right? He's always getting to the heart of the matter. So in many ways, what you see in the New Testament is you see this language that says, God loves a cheerful giver. Give generously. Plan on purpose. Be intentional. Set out the day that you're going to give. There's this idea here that it says, you've heard it said, give this 10% or this specific percentage, but I say to you, Give generously. And for some of us, 10% isn't generous. And for some of us, 8% might be generous. See, this is where we have to get to a place where we go, okay, Lord, I need to figure out what it means to give generously. And if we are part of a community of God and we're a part of a church that says we want to be able to help the poor, we want to be able to help people who are in need, and we want to be able to see God's kingdom go forward in our own church, then we have to be a people that says, I want to commit to giving generously. And this is something we have to get really real on. Here we are. We are in a place in our church right now where we're, we're hoping to be able to elect elders uh, by the end of the fall. And we're hoping to, to, to find a new building. And we're wanting to go to that next level. What I've noticed is a lot of times there will be people who are, hey, when are we going to do this? Hey, when are we getting ready to get X, Y, and Z? Hey, when are we going to get a building? And you almost want to go, hey, do you have any skin in the game here? <laughs> Most times, the, the, the only investment people make is input and opinions. And they think that's a part of their worship. Input and opinions. But if we're really, really going to be a people that says we are committed to each other and committed to the work of God, then beyond what we sing on Sunday, where, 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 where does our checkbook say we are? Where do, so honestly, like when you, you realize where your real treasure is, when you see where your checkbook is. And so we have to ask that question when, when people are going, you know, I just really, I'll tell you, I've had people say some things over the last five years that blows my mind with respect to giving and respect to giving to church. I remember when we first started, we had a core team of people and uh, we had people who were like solid and really appreciated them and were really excited. And they were like, yeah, but we don't really believe in giving to churches at all. And I was like, wow, not even the one that you're a part of, that, that you're like committed to, that you've got people that you love there. So if, so if people have needs in the church, and we don't always publicize this, but when there are people who have needs in the church, we try to be able to act and care for that. Where does that come from? Sometimes it comes from the generosity of people directly here, which is incredible. There are things I don't even know have happened that people do. But sometimes people come to the church and say, hey, we need help here. Are we able to do this? Where is that supposed to come from? And I'm asking these people who have been professional Christians for a really long time, and they're like, yeah, but, you know, we just, we, we just find our own places to give, and it's okay. You see, a lot of times, and this is just family business here, but a lot of times, the way you think about your money says a lot about what you think of the church as a whole. It says a lot about having a low view of church or a high view of church. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we just go pick any old, it doesn't have to be this church, I get it, people can be at any church, but it's not a matter of uh, it has to be at this church or that church. The question is, what is your view of church in general? Do you have a view of like, man, if I'm in a healthy church, a church that wants to make much of Jesus, that wants to see people be fully formed disciples, that wants people to be adequately cared for, 
then do I want to actually give my time, but also my resources to ensure that we're all cared for? So that's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. When you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2, and you remember all of these folks that were there, you had all these people that were coming from all these different countries, every Jewish nation under heaven represented there on the day of Pentecost. And I always felt this strongly when I was a kid because growing up in what they would call a Pentecostal church was simply meant, let's reenact what we see on the day of Pentecost in scripture. Growing up in that church, oftentimes, Acts chapter two was just a way to be able to prove, and here's what happens to all these people that believe. All these spiritual gifts will start to happen. And I'm like, wait, why do we skip? Why, why, don't, why do we just highlight that and not focus on what happened at the very end? At the very end, as a result of the Holy Spirit being in God's people, you know what it made them do? Forget about whatever gifts and speaking in tongues. That wasn't even the point. You know what they ended up doing? Selling their things, figuring out where people had needs, and giving generously. Miss me if you say you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but you're not generous. Just stop saying it. Say, yeah, Jesus is cool, but he's not Lord, and the Spirit really isn't living in me because I don't have the need of feeling like I should be generous. That's actually a function of God's Spirit in us. The moment that we know that we're in need, the moment that we hear that there's a need, we go, Lord, the, the, this is a place where you've placed me that I feel safe, and I feel like the church is really doing what they need to do to be able to help meet the needs of people spiritually and physically, and so this is where my money's going to go. And understand, this isn't even about the church anymore. This is about my direct relationship to you. God, I care so much about you, and I know you love your church. I know you died for your church. I know this is the primary way by which you bless your people is through the church, and so I'm committing to that. But some of us have such a low view of church biblically that we can't help but to be idolaters with our money. And so where are we? What do we love? Soon we hope to be electing elders. If you remember uh, in 1 in Timothy uh, and in Titus, there are these requirements for what it means to be a deacon and an elder in a church. One of the things that is such a, can be a little hard to be able to figure out is there's a place in there where it says, not a lover of money. Now, how in the world do you know if somebody is a lover of money? It can't just be, I see you got that Gucci bag, you must love money. I promise I wasn't looking at anybody specific, I promise. If you got Gucci, grace and peace. It's awesome. Great. But, but how do you know? What, what do you, how, how do we figure that out, right? How do we know who is a lover of money? You don't just ask him, do you love money? No. Okay, you're in. So, so how, how do we really know? Well, ultimately, one of the main ways that we know as a church is, what does your giving look like? And this isn't like, I want to be able to figure out how much and tell you whether you should be giving more. It's more so, what are your generosity habits? And, and I can know certain things you tell me that's true, and for sure we hear stories of people being generous to each other, but ultimately, what does generosity look like for you in your church? What does generosity look like? That's a part of your discipleship. I wouldn't be doing my job. We wouldn't be doing our job if every other area of your life were going to go, hey, what does life look like for you in your marriage? You're a husband. What does it look like for you to be a husband right now? What does it look like for you to be a wife right now? What does it look like for you to be a single college student? What does it look like for you to be single uh, at work? What does it look like for you to be uh, older and retired? All these questions, most of us would go, okay, that's cool. I, I expect that. I accept that. Hey, what are you doing with your money? Whoa, 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 whoa. Ease up. We can talk about the, some of the difficult, intimate issues of your marriage, but we go, hey, what, is it, what, what are your spending habits like? Do you realize that whenever I've had some of these talks with folks, I've had talks with folks when we start talking about the money thing, and it wasn't even like, you know, I just said, hey, I want to go talk. It just came up. 
And as they're talking, hey, what is what what do some of your habits look like? What does generosity look like? And in talking to them, they said, you know what? I gotta be honest. I'm realizing that I am so inept at being generous because I have some serious money problems. And we start finding out serious financial problems that we were actually able to bless and help them get back into some healthy habits so that they could take care of things they needed and honestly be generous. So what might mean for a person that says, hey, listen, for me, because of where I am, please understand this, because I've seen churches do this, and I think it is horribly abusive when churches will say, listen, I grew up, I've been in some churches where they'll flat out have like a $100 line, a $500 line, a $1,000 line, and they'll start picking out the people they think that can pay that. They're like, Earl, I know you're a doctor, so I'm picking on you, Earl. I know you're a doctor, Earl, so you can come out here and give me $10,000, right? They'll call them out right there in church. Right? And just give people this idea, you know, you need to be able to come down and do this. That's not it either, right? Because ultimately, it's something you've dedicated in your heart to give. Giving should never be compulsory. It should never be, I've guilted you into it. It should be, I have actually been, been moved by what God has done for me that makes me go, I can't do anything else but give. So the issue is never what you give. The issue is what you keep and why. What I keep and why? What is it that makes me say, because if I'm keeping it, I'm protecting something. And ultimately, we all have this struggle, right? Because ultimately, resources are always scarce. So I'm so afraid of what's going to happen. I'm so afraid if I give this, am I going to get it back? I'm so afraid if I get this, is there going to be more later? I'm operating in this scarcity mentality. And this is why one of the best truths that can govern all the ways that we give is this. Everything already belongs to him. Everything already belongs to him. If we think like that, then ultimately, everything we have, even if we've worked hard and earned it, it's all loaned to us. Everything we have is on loan from God. God, you've given me this. You've given me the ability to do this. That's awesome. You've given me the ability to acquire wealth, or you've given me the ability to acquire some of these resources. Maybe I was born into a family where I had certain resources. Whatever, however that happened, it happened. What do I need to do to steward this for your glory, God? I want to, and I realize that generosity is always a part of stewarding things for your glory. So our prayer life shouldn't just be, God, give me more. It's almost, God, increase, my gen increase generosity in my heart. Give me a heart that desperately wants to be generous first. Shouldn't just go right to, what, what do I need? What can I get? What can I hold? And then at the end of the day, okay, finally, I have some things left over. Now I'll give. See, this is how we know the difference between whether or not we are generous or whether we're idolaters. And when you think through what it is that we say we believe, here we are, we're, we're supposed to, we say like, I want to be able to embody who Jesus is to me. I want to be able to embody who Jesus is to us. We want to be a community of people that wants to be able to embody what Jesus has done for us. What has Jesus done for us? Has he not been generous to us? Has Jesus not demonstrated his generosity in ways that still are unfathomable? Has he not shown him to himself to be one that says, not only am I going to give you what you do not deserve, which is incredibly generous, but I'm also not going to give you the things you probably do deserve, which is also very generous. If you're overwhelmed by the generosity of God, then you can't walk in anything else but generosity. 
So, so, so for some of us, again, it might start, like some of the people I talk to, it might start with, you know what, I can't do this, but I'm going to identify. I've known some people that are like every year, be, based on the habits that we've created in our family or in our life, or as, if I'm single, these habits I've created, I've got bills and I've got this and I've got that. The one thing that we don't do is say, and I've seen churches do this, hey, listen, Yep, I know you got bills. I've seen this happen where they say, I know you've got bills. Don't pay that bill. Give that money here first, and God will give it back to you. That is false. Please, if y'all hear me do this, remove me now. Because, because the Bible also says don't, to, to owe man nothing. We're actually supposed to work our way out of ever being in debt to anyone. So it would totally be asinine to go, hey, that thing that you should be doing as a good, responsible citizen of paying your, your bills, don't do that. Give it here instead. See, that's worldly wisdom. That's ungodly logic. We'll never do that. What it may look like is this. Listen, I'm not going to give you a dollar amount. Here's what's going to happen. Pay your bills. Figure out what has to happen. And if there's people that you can meet with, that we, we have people here that can do that and will walk through and say, here's a financial plan for me to be more generous. Let's walk through that. It might be, for me, it might be 5% for the next six months until I get these things down. And then the big goal is this. What do I do? How intentional will I be? I make a plan and I prioritize that plan. And I say, you know what? For these first six months, this is what I'm doing. And when I get to this point, I will now uh, up my percentage to this. I know people, even people in this church, that have made that as a point of their lives to say, every year, this is good. we're moving this percentage up. We're moving this percentage up. There's one pastor uh, who uh, wrote a book. And cre- you know, this book was super, super popular, well-known, made a ton of money. And this pastor, that pastor decided, A, stop taking the salary from, the ch- from this church. He just said, I don't need it. Like, I don't need to do this. And then also he said, um, I'm going to reverse tithe to the church. <laughs> what he decided to do was just live off of 10% of what he had and gave 90% away. I'm not saying that that is what we all should do. What I'm saying is our hearts should be open to be moved in that direction. What does generosity look like? So the question has to be, Lord, what, what do I give, but also what do I keep? Lord, help me realize what it is. What are the reasons why I keep it? Because if we're going to be the church that, that I believe God's called us to be, we have to be known for who we serve and how generously we give to each other, to his kingdom don't want us to be a people that people can look at and go, well, those folks sure do love money because they sure keep it. (laughs) And this is something that when you look at what Paul is really warning Timothy, he's really warning and he's encouraging him and say, remember who gave so much to you. Remember who's been so generous to you. And live a life that says, I really believe that and I hold to that and I'm being remade to think differently because of that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, everything that we have, we know in our head that it comes from you. We know that it originates with you. But God, if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's so easy to begin to take the things that are yours, stamp our name on it, and act as if they're ours. Father, I pray that you would give us truly a thankful heart a contented heart. I'm reminded in your scriptures so many times you juxtapose the idolatry of money with contentment. Lord, I pray that we would not always be a people that just needs the next thing, that needs more. God, I pray that we would see that our discontentment actually harms each other because we're less equipped, we're less able, and even less willing to love 
to give and be generous. Father, I pray that we would see our giving as a function of our worship, not something that happens in the midst of it. And I pray that we would feel a, a deep sense of conviction as we, not even as we think through what we give or what we don't, but really our motives. God, I pray that we, even if we have much, that we would not be giving to be seen. I pray that we would not be giving uh, to be recognized. I pray that we would, not, we would not be giving in order to earn something from you. God, ultimately, I also pray that we would think in terms of our own spiritual growth that our giving is never a debt we owe, but truly a seed we sow in your kingdom. Father, I pray that this would be something true of our hearts. Continue moving on us. Continue to break these areas that need to be broken. God, break us of the idolatry of the love of money and convict us for all the evils that have been rooted in that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this table, this is something that we proclaim is true about what it is that this generosity that Jesus has afforded us. You know, every time we come to this table, this is really what we're saying. We're living into the generosity of Christ. We're living in the ways in which he has given so much, given so much, saying, listen, I see the debt that you owe. The debt you owe because of your sin is one that you cannot pay. And I'm going to be so generous. God says, I'm going to be so generous that I'm going to give my son to live out this perfect life, to make him a perfect enough sacrifice, to pay the price that you owe. Is there anything more generous than that? But not only just that, not only I'm just going to die for you, not only am I going to die for you, but I'm going to do what's necessary to remake you so that you are made holy again. And the only way I demonstrate that power is not just in dying, but in resurrecting, to show you that I have power not only over the things that are alive, that I have not power not only over the, over the things that I showed you miraculously, but I have power even over death, hell, and the grave. There is nothing that can hold you anymore. God is so generous that he removed even the sting of death and hell for you. This is what we say we hold to. We say, honestly, we realized the debt that we owed was so high. We were desperately in need of rescue, of being bought back, being redeemed. And we believe that. We believe that the only answer to our idolatry of today, you're thinking through, wow, I really see that. There's some idols here. Maybe it wasn't that, but there's something else that I know I love and I cling to that I probably shouldn't. Jesus doesn't leave you in that shame. He says, by the way, that idolatry that I, by my grace, revealed to you, I also died for that too. That idolatry that you're seeing, you don't have to hide that anymore. You don't have to hide like they did during smallpox. You don't have to hide your sin from the disease. You don't have to hide your children from the disease. You can come close to it because he's saying, I know this. I gave you the grace to see this, and I'm actually giving you my righteousness so that you no longer have to hold to this again. That's generosity. That's his love for you. That's his love for us. So if that's where your joy is, even if you are, are humbled by some of the areas in your own idolatry, if you take comfort and hope in the fact that, no, I am not a perfect person, I clearly am still an idolater, but I am trusting, I am broken, I am repentant, and I am leaning, I am trusting in the finished work of Jesus to make me clean, to render me not guilty, then this table is for you. If that's not where you are, if you're just not sure, if you're like, you know, I think that the way that I have some things are good for me, or I don't know that I am an idolater. I don't know that I really have any of these areas here. 
then let this time pass. The, the scripture says that he who says that they don't have sin is a liar and the truth isn't in them. And we all struggle with that at times. The moment where things are pointed out, I don't know how I feel about that, right? We say this often here, exposure feels like assault. <laughs> and so the moment something's exposed, you get defensive. And No, this is a time where we really truly can lean into and go, you know what, I don't have to hide this. This is something real. But also, if maybe you're a believer and there are things that you know right now are idols for you and you will not let it go. You are like, you know, I, I just, I believe this, but I have to just honestly say, I'm not ready to let this go. Then this isn't even a time to shame you. Jesus wants to meet you where you are too. But he wants to meet you right there. He doesn't want you to come and act, put on a mask and, and profess something that isn't true. So let this time pass. Let this time pass and let this be a time where you're like, Lord, I need you to do work with me. I need you to do heart surgery on me because there are some idols I can't break. And he promises, he promises to help you break them. Anytime there's temptation, he says he promises to make a way of escape. So if there is an idol that has befallen you, he wants to meet you here. And our prayer is that he would come meet you there, break those things in your heart, and you can come today, maybe even for the first time, trusting in a savior that loves you enough to crush the idols of your own heart. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that here at Icon, we do communion by the process of intinction. And so what that means is you'll come down the middle aisle, starting in the back, you'll walk down and take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you'll dip it in the wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, let that word sit in for a minute. Jesus was betrayed sitting at this Passover meal that they have every year. And they're, they're celebrating Passover. And he's looking at all these people who are claiming to love him, claiming to follow him, looking at the one who is going to deny him later, the other one who's going to rat him out later. And he's looking at them. And you know, all he can do is go, and I'm still going to show you my generosity. On the night that he was betrayed, he gave thanks for that Passover meal. He picked up the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup. What has just been a normal cup, type of cup they've been drinking from for centuries, even millennia. They've been drinking from this, these types of cups all the time. And he takes this cup and he says, this cup is my blood. Blood poured out for the remission, the forgiveness of sins the blood of a new covenant, take and drink of it. Here's what Paul tells us. Paul says that every single time we do this, every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. What are we proclaiming? Ultimately, we're saying we know that we suffer from idolatry. We know that our sin is rooted in idolatry. And we know that our best efforts will not cure us of this particular version of a disease. It, nothing will cure it outside of the finished work, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is who he said he is, then he's going to come back to finish what he started. So while we mourn the areas of our idolatry, we don't mourn as those without any hope because we believe that he's coming to finish what he inaugurated. If that's what your hope is, even in your brokenness, if that's where your trust is, if that's where your joy is, then come, be convinced, be reminded that our Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together. Amen.